Highest West Durham. No timeouts left for Georgia Tech. Calvin Johnson will go to the left. Justin Miller finds him defensively. Ball from under center. Sets. Throws. Johnson's there. It is. Touchdown. Touchdown. Calvin Johnson. Touchdown. Son of a gun. He has absolutely lived up to the legendary billing. And with 11 seconds left, Georgia Tech has taken the lead. Are you serious? Reggie Ball took three steps, looped it, and the legend is born in Calvin Johnson. Holy smokes. And you're listening to The Bridge. Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this sports show. What's it like to be the voice of both a college football and NFL team? We'll talk about that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On episode 119 of The Bridge. (laughs) Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America here on Wednesday, August 22nd, 2018, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right, The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America Monday through Friday with a brand new show on Wednesday nights on the East Coast, though the show is technically pre-recorded. If you do miss the live show, the podcast version of The Bridge is available after that broadcast, which means you can find the newest episode and additional content from the show later on Wednesday night on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts under The Bridge Sports Podcast or on my website at londonbridge.com. I'll save all the ways you can listen to The Bridge and where you can find the show until the end of this latest installment. If anything, you can call in or text into the show 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. Now, loyal listeners of this show know that now we usually transition into a couple of segments before getting into the interview with this week's guest and closing out the show. Well, it's time to change things up. Oh, say change it up. Change it up. We'll still close out the show with a movie review this week with the film The Equalizer 2, but first... Let's get down to business. This week's guest is Wes Durham. He's the radio voice of the Atlanta Falcons, does TV play-by-play of ACC College Football and Hoops for Fox Sports South, and is the co-host along with Mark Packer of ACC This Morning on Sirius XM's ACC Radio Channel 371. Oh, and before that, he was the radio play-by-play voice for Georgia Tech football and basketball for 18 years. Wes has broadcasting in his blood, thanks to being the son of Woody Durham, who was the voice of the North Carolina Tar Heels for 40 years. However, while some would think those would be some big shoes to fill in sports broadcasting, Wes managed to forge his own path in media and continues to challenge himself even today. I had the pleasure of meeting and working with Wes through the ACC channel, and it was even more of a pleasure to get to hear some of his stories here. We'll chat about his decision to get into sports media and the influence his father may have had with that, some of his early jobs in the industry before landing at Georgia Tech and then with the Atlanta Falcons and ACC Radio, some of the challenges he's faced along the way, some great anecdotes and stories of his father, Woody Durham, getting dunked on in high school, working at a roller rink in high school. We're covering it all this show. You can follow Wes on Twitter. He's at Wes Durham. That's W-E-S-D-U-R-H-A-M. And without further ado, let's get into that interview. We're here with Wes Durham. He's the radio voice of the Atlanta Falcons, does play-by-play for ACC College Football and Basketball for Fox Sports South, and is the co-host along with Mark Packer of ACC This Morning on ACC Radio Sirius XM 371. Wes, thanks so much for coming on the show. How are you? 
I'm great, John. Fun to do. I appreciate you asking me. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you come on, and it'll definitely be fun to hear some of your stories. And I usually start these when it comes to talking to sports media folks with a question of, how did you decide to get into the business? But for you, I have to rephrase it a little bit. How much did growing up with your father, Woody Durham, as the voice of the Tar Heels influence you in pursuing broadcasting? Um, obviously, it had an impact. Um, but I think I, I came to this. Well, let's back up for a second. I, I think I was blessed, first of all, two things. One is that when I was 12 years old, I was six feet tall and 185 pounds. Um which was great because, you know, I was the biggest kid, obviously, in the class, and, and I loved to play basketball. The The ugly little story about me is I only played one year of high school football. Um, I played my sophomore year, and I enjoyed it. But at the same time, the following summer, I got a job in radio before my junior year, and I knew I was going to play radio a lot longer than I was going to play football. But um, when I was 12, I was really big for my age, and I love basketball. And I went to camps in the summer from the time I was nine or ten years old till, uh, I mean, like overnight camps. When I was nine or ten years old, I went to camps, and so uh, kind of a weird thing happened. When I was 14, uh, I was getting ready to go into the uh, eighth grade or ninth grade, getting ready to go to ninth grade, and uh, my freshman year in high school and I played basketball in middle school and made the school team and things like that and had been pretty good and it, it kind of had a nice year and so I was at camp that summer and a kid who ultimately played at the University of Virginia named Richard Morgan who was a year younger than me so he's going into eighth grade well he comes down the floor in the gym one day and I think well you know I got a chance I'll just stop him and he dunked it on me and I thought wait a second I mean, I'd never been around somebody dunking in person, let alone dunking on somebody. And so I kind of was like, whoa. And that whole week, not that the dunk, you know, shattered my dreams of being Larry Bird or somebody, uh, but I, I kind of took a lot of solace in, hey, look, you know, you're either going to, you're going to have a chance to maybe do some other things and, you know, you ought to kind of take stock in who you are. And I guess I, I, I was lucky because I knew what my dad did and I knew how much he loved it and, I kind of got to see that process play out in front of me, not only the games themselves, or but more or less the preparation and all the things that went into it. And so not that I decided when I was 14 years old and came home from summer camp after Richard Morgan dunked on me that I was going to get in this business, but it certainly was something that revealed to me that there was a ceiling on my basketball career. And uh, I ended up playing basketball through high school, wasn't a role player at best, um, but always found a way to just kind of love being around sports. And I think a lot of us, John, to be honest with you, get in this business because we love sports. Some of us who were fortunate to play, you know, middle school, high school ball, we just try and find a way to stay connected. And for me, and I think, you know, a couple of friends of mine in this business, we're pretty, pretty honest in saying, this is the way we stay connected. And, um, you know, it's it's been awesome. I mean, I've been very very fortunate in a in a to have a nice career at this, and have really enjoyed every step of the way. And on the plus side, that dunk didn't make its way onto the internet, so you're good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's good because in 1980 we didn't have the internet, uh, which is which is also really good because not other guy, other guys who who come up at the at the age of 13 or 14 can't say that these days for well, sure. Well, you made the mistake of saying that story. You could have said it was a layup. Nobody's going to know the difference except yeah, for well, the person uh, that he, did the dunk. Yeah, Richard grew up in uh, in Salem, Virginia and went to UVA and was a really good player in the ACC and uh, the funny part is I've told that story a couple different places, and apparently he's heard about it from some old Virginia basketball players. In fact, uh, Jim Miller told me this winter, he said, oh, yeah, I heard that he said the reason you got into this business is because Richard Morgan ducked on you at Carolina's basketball camp. I said, There's tr that is exactly one of the things that did happen that sparked the interest in me going ahead and doing this. So it's it's kind of a fun story, but it is. It's, it's pretty true, and um, he's not the only one that ever dunked on me. Uh, I got dunked on in high school when I was a freshman by Nate McMillan, who's now the coach of the Indiana Pacers. So 
uh, I figured if I got dunked on twice, I'd be pretty good. So those were two. That wasn't those were two decent guys to get dunked on, I guess. Well, speaking of dunking, did you meet Michael Jordan as part of these camps, not as part of somebody covering him in the media? I did not meet Michael uh, personally. I met a lot of Michael's high school teammates the year after uh, the year his prior to his freshman year at Carolina. He wasn't eligible to go to camp, but his high school had several kids that were at the camp. Coach Herring, who was his high school coach, Cliff Herring was uh, one of the counselors at camp, and it brought a bunch of players from Michael's high school team who were a year younger. Um, there's this huge kid named Reggie Johnson who was a big-time post guy, and then Kevin Malloy was this, uh, believe it or not, ambidextrous guy who was like a 6'2", 6'3", swing guy who could really play. I did not meet Michael until um, middle of his freshman year, I guess, at Carolina in 82 um so i no, but i i met ralph sampson believe it or not before he went to virginia he stayed on my hallway at basketball camp one year chris washburn who later was a first round pick in the nba kind of a sad story you know got caught up in drugs and things like that and, and never really uh never really had much of an nba career i met chris washburn and ralph sampson and guys like that at basketball camps in the summer and i was fortunate i went to a lot of camps and Loved it and loved to play and um, you know it was it was awesome. It was just awesome to spend your summers in the in your as your teenage years playing basketball. You know up through middle teens and then when I was sixteen, I was I went to work every summer. I wanted to work in a radio station and see how much experience I could get. So you would think Ralph Sampson would have been the hey I got dunked on and everyone would have just been like <laughs> well that's fine. I mean who hasn't been dunked on by Ralph Sampson? But no, yeah. that's you you made out lucky with that. Yeah, you stayed out of his way when people saw him at camp. He wasn't in my gym. He was in another gym, thank goodness. But you knew pretty quick when you saw him that he was going to be something because, you know, you remember now, he was a 6'11", 7-foot kid at, at like 16, 17 years old, John. I mean, he was – he was, but he wasn't uh, like a, a muscular, put-together guy. Right. He was just long. I mean, he's not – you know, some people see Ralph Sampson and think, well, you know, golly, Shaquille O'Neal. No, 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 no. Ralph Sampson was – you know, 240 pounds on a 7-1 frame. I mean, he was thin compared to big guys you see today, for sure. I'll save some things about your dad till later on, but when you're 14, I'm guessing you might have thrown out a conversation with your dad like, hey, I'm thinking about doing this broadcasting thing. Did he let you be, in a sense, when it came to pursuing what you wanted to do or what you thought you wanted to do for a career? What was your relationship like in that early going for how you might approach him as to what to do with it? Well, that's an interesting question, um, and one that's never really been asked like that. Um, but here's kind of the way it transpired, and it's interesting you, you put it that way because this is what happened. My dad not only was doing North Carolina's games from 1971 on, but up until 1981, he was also a sports anchor at television stations, first in Greensboro, North Carolina, and then over in the Raleigh-Durham market, John. And it became, you know, when I was a young kid, now I say young, you know, like second, third, fourth, fifth grade, uh, we left Greensboro when I, at the beginning of my sixth grade year. The only real way I could spend time with my dad was to go to the TV station with him on Friday nights. Because remember, I was at school during the day and my dad would be at work and he might come home for dinner after the six o'clock news, but he would go back to work for the 11 and, uh, and then I'd be asleep when he came home and he'd be asleep when I got up to go to school. And so, you know, long story short, one of the ways my dad and I spent time together was for me to go to the TV station with him on Friday nights. And I really enjoyed it. The people at the TV station were nice to a kid who was just goofing around and, um, we used to go to high school football games or basketball games and things like that on Friday nights in the fall, maybe, or, um, you know, whatever the case may be, we might go to an old ABA Carolina Cougars game on a Friday night. Um, so I really enjoyed the atmosphere of the television station. I thought all that stuff was neat. I thought the books, I thought the, the media guides and the magazines and all the stuff that was in the TV station was really cool. And, so, you know, he kind of knew that I enjoyed the environment and the atmosphere. But when I came back and I was 14, I said, you know, Dad, I think I want to get into radio TV sports. He was fine with it and incredibly supportive from day one. But he also said, you know, if you want to do this, the most important thing is for you to get around people beyond me. 
just have experiences with other folks. And so even early in my, you know, career decision-making, if you will, John, he was somebody that said, Hey, look, I want you to, I want you to seek out other people. And believe it or not, he was still trying to, he told me when I was in basketball, you know, when I was playing basketball in high school, he told me one time, he said, if this doesn't work out, you know, for you and radio TV and you get into some other form of business, he said, you really ought to think about being a basketball official. He goes, you know the game. He goes, and, you know, you'd be really, really good as a, a basketball official. And uh, the irony of that is, is that, you know, some of my best friends in basketball are actually basketball officials, guys who are on the whistle of, you know, national championships, Final Fours, whatever the case may be, uh, certainly ACC guys. And, and, you know, my dad always thought I'd be a really good official. And um, and because of that, I, I tend to take, I take a keen interest in what those guys go through, especially in basketball and certainly try and, you know, be up to date and up to speed and acclimated with all the rules, be it basketball or football, that kind of thing. Because I know that's a, uh, officiating now today, college football, college basketball, and certainly in the NFL, it's a, golly, it's a thankless job. There's no question about that. I wanted to hit on that too as far as getting to know different athletes, getting to know people in the business, mm-hmm. because you're growing up watching sports, really getting into sports, and probably think – look at this guy, he's my favorite player, or I love watching this specific team play, but you also have the opportunity to go to those games, to stand next to those players in a sense growing up and be surrounded by that atmosphere and by that lifestyle. How much did that help you once you got into the industry in that you're doing an interview with, say, even Michael Jordan, but you're not Mm -hmm. intimidated because you've already lived that and that's pretty much all you've known growing up? Yeah, that's a, that's a good point too. I mean, it, you know, I had a lot of experiences as a kid um, because of my dad's association with Carolina, or you know, going to. I remember my dad interviewing Wilt Chamberlain before the San Diego Conquistadors and the Carolina Cougars played one night in Greensboro. I mean, I remember Wilt Chamberlain being just this mammoth human being. Um, you know, my dad would interview like Metal Arc Lemon and Curly Neal of the Harlem Globetrotters, and I was standing there you know, with his cameraman type thing. Um, you know, it, those experiences, yeah, they kind of took the edge off that when you, you know, when you, when I got into the NFL and started doing games in 2004 for the Falcons, or, you know, when I came to the ACC in 1995, going up and, you know, doing something with, you know, Coach Smith on tape before a game, that wasn't really that intimidating or talking to Bobby Bowden my first couple of years in the ACC or, or whatever the case may be, um, you know, Rick Pitino, when he, when I was at Vanderbilt, I got the Vanderbilt job at 26 before I went to Georgia tech. And, you know, I was interviewing Rick Pitino the next basketball season. I mean, it was, you know, some of that stuff might be intimidating, but to me, I just knew they were, you know, very similar people than the ones I had grown up around and you treat them with respect. You try and ask really good questions and, you know, you're not, you're not trying to take up a lot of their time because they're being gracious with theirs. And that's the one thing I always kept in mind when I was around people like that. Did you ever find yourself maybe working a little bit harder or just where you were in the business where you might have gotten a, hey, aren't you Woody son type mm. of thing? Was that ever something that you had to overcome at all to maybe have to get out of his shadow? Or was it something where you just sort of proved yourself along the way? John, to me, the number one thing that I always tried to do was I didn't want to embarrass my dad or embarrass my family. You know, I didn't want somebody to think, well, the only reason he's here is because, and people were going to say it anyway. You know, I, I couldn't, I can't keep anybody. And to this day, I mean, I'm 52 years old and somebody might say, well, Wes Durham getting this job because of who his dad was. Maybe so, but it's up to me to show them that, you know, I've got the ability or the talent or whatever the case might be, or I've had the experience now to, you know, that it can stand on its own. But sure, early on in my career, I mean, I got the Vanderbilt job, like I said a moment ago, at 26, and I'm pretty sure that most people thought I got that job because of my dad. I'd like to think that Vanderbilt hired me because they thought I was pretty good and, you know, I was a good fit for the situation that they had at the time. Same at Georgia Tech. Even though the athletic director at Georgia Tech in 1995, 24 years earlier, had hired my dad in North Carolina. Now, you talk about ironies, right? And my dad and I used to joke that really the only mistake Dr. Rice ever made was hiring my dad at Carolina and then hiring me at Georgia Tech. Everything else was pretty good in his career. But <laughs> um, but I think that, you know, at certain points, you have to you have to prove you belong. 
And I've never forgotten that. I mean, you know, even now getting ready to start 15 years in the NFL, <clears throat> I, I always think you're, you're out to prove it every day. Um, you know, whether you've, whether you've been, you know, an acclaimed announcer or you're just doing your first broadcast, you're still trying to prove you belong. And, you know, you don't, you don't stand pat, man. You try and keep getting better every time. And that's certainly one of the things I continue to work on even today. Could you give a Cliff Notes version of sorts of the before Vanderbilt graduating from Elon, some of your early responsibilities mm. and first jobs before eventually getting into Georgia Tech and moving from there? Well, Cliff Notes version is I was lucky to get the first job. Uh, Radford University decided to hire somebody to come on campus. I mean, I was I was at a dead end. I thought I had done a lot of work and I was very fortunate, John. I had a great experience at Elon. I did 150 football and basketball games in four years. I mean, I had a great experience at Elon. Um, because the school was just starting communications, and quite frankly, nobody else wanted to do the game. So I got involved and, you know, had a lot of bad tape. <laughs> I mean, uh, real bad tape. And so when I left Elon, I thought I was ready for a job and couldn't find one. And fortunately, my dad had told me to seek out other people. Well, one of the people that I sought out was Jeff Charles, who had just left Virginia Tech to go to East Carolina, and he had gotten word from people at Radford they were going to make a hire. Now, the the unique thing about Radford was is they didn't have football. So I went three years without doing football. I just did basketball alone at Radford and some baseball, and that was fine. Um, the interesting part, the spinoff from that is, is that uh, my after my second year at Radford, I applied for the Wake Forest job, and I didn't get it. And to this day, it's the best thing to ever happen to me. Because if I'd have gotten that job at Wake Forest, I would have never had the drive or the energy or the competitive whatever that you need to be successful in this business because I would have thought I'd made it at 20, what, 4, 25 years old. And so... I went to Marshall from Radford after three years, and I was there just one year. And then the Vanderbilt job came open in June of 92, and they interviewed me and offered me the job two weeks after I interviewed. And um, after three years at Vanderbilt and great stops, great experiences, things like that, I got an opportunity to go to Georgia Tech in June of 1995. And Ended up staying 18 years till I went to television full-time in 2013. What's been the biggest challenge of this along the way? I know that's probably a harder question now that you have two avenues of an answer with radio and television, but is sure. there something in the early going that maybe you realized was something you needed to improve on and could look back now and think, I'm doing that a lot better now? Oh, I think my preparation is a lot better now than it was then. Um I think, you know, the longer you keep doing it, the more organized you get, John. I think my organization for broadcast is, uh, I mean, I always look at stuff in the off season. I'm a geek about charts and cards and, you know, guys that turn everything around on a computer. I mean, I, you know, they're guys that have an, uh, an Apple or a Mac and they turn everything around on a computer and I look and go, God, I couldn't do that. I mean, I'm just not wired that way. Um, I've got to print some things out, but I got to hand write things down because that helps me memorize. Um, but there are challenges every year. I mean, I, but I definitely think the preparation's now more organized, and certainly I like to think better. Um, and I think doing so much, I think you know, having two football games every weekend has helped. Um, you know, and then mid-November comes along, and I'm doing college football, the NFL, and college basketball. Um, and then you throw in the show with Packer and, you know, I got a full plate. It's a wonder I can, you know, remember to eat breakfast, but, um, no, I think, I think that is the challenge. Do you have the discipline and the, you know, the preparation to just kind of say, this is what you're going to do. And you gotta, you gotta command your time and manage your time wisely. And that's a big challenge too. And I'd like to think I got a pretty good handle on that as well. How much did your career change when you went from Mr. Durham to dad? <laughs> you mean when my kids were born? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, a lot, but at the same time, uh, my my ex-wife and I were, you know, we struggled to have kids. And so we went through a lot of fertility treatments. And when Will and Emily were born in April of 99, 
you know, a lot of things changed. Um, that for, in fact, I can't begin to tell you anything specific about their first football season, you know, as toddlers, because all I can remember is Joe Hamilton senior year at Georgia Tech, and they ended up playing in the Gator Bowl that year against Miami and lost in his final, you know, game as a Georgia Tech player. I can't tell you anything about the basketball season. It wasn't very good. I remember that was Bobby Crimmins last year as coach. But, you know, my kids were – it really compounded, you know, all the other things you did when you have, you know, twins. And so, um, you know, they, they've obviously been huge fans. And they're even though they don't go to Georgia Tech, they're still Georgia Tech fans. And, um, and we have a great relationship even after my ex-wife and I got divorced um, – in 2005 and I got remarried a couple of years later, you know, my kids have been just incredibly supportive. They love what their dad does and they get a big kick out of it. They think it's, uh, they think it's hilarious when, you know, a call gets replayed on national radio or sports center or something like that. They get, they just get a huge charge out of it. They think that's, you know, come on, dad, you're not that good. You know, that type thing. So, uh, we have, we have a really fun relationship like that. I can throw the I'm interviewing someone in sports and broadcasting media, so I should probably ask if they have any advice for any people that might be thinking of doing so question at you. And it's interesting with your career, looking back, people might think, well, he has everything he would ever need at Georgia Tech. Why would he ever leave? Or why would he take additional Mm. responsibilities? Or why would he go from radio to a different market in television? But that's been something that has never stopped you and and whatever challenges you might face at whatever age as as just pushed you to do even better than before what would you say to people that might be considering getting into the business about the hurdles that they might face along the way and and maybe taking a leap of faith for some things they want to get involved with wow it's a um well the first thing is is that i think you have to understand number one that the business continues to evolve um I mean, look at us. We're doing a podcast, right? I mean, this is something that wouldn't have been, you know, anywhere near a medium of information a decade ago. So I think you got to think about the evolution of the business and it never stops. I think the other part is you got to have some working knowledge of how business works in today's sports media. I really believe that part, John. I think you, I think you're shortchanging yourself if you don't get in this business and understand the financials of it. I mean, because it is, it is directing success in, in this industry now. I mean, you know, you hear about rights fees and you hear about the money being spent on certain things. Well, you probably ought to have a command of the budget and a business aspect. I, like I told a group this summer, I think one of the things, you know, if you get into play-by-play, you better understand rights fees and budgets and that kind of thing. I mean, that's just simple kind of knowledge. I mean, I'll do a television game this year in football that has six cameras. And it has six and not eight because of the budget. Um, you know, we'll use a shorter truck some games. Why? Because it's cheaper. You need to understand that. I, I just think you're selling yourself short if you don't. Uh, in terms of getting better, I think there's one thing about this that, you know, they're great success stories. I mean, you've had you've had Adam Amin on. He's not only a good friend, um, you know, we we have remarkable success stories of guys who are sub-30 or sub-35. Brandon Gordon, who followed me at Georgia Tech, is a good example. Um, you know, there are half dozen to a dozen guys who are sub-35 that are doing big-time games. Joe Davis is, you know, as talented as it gets in the Dodgers. Um, but I would tell you that there still has to be a degree of patience to this. Um, and that's not always something that's been readily available and readily understood. But I mean, you know, I didn't, I didn't move to television until I was 47. Why? Um, my timing was a little different and, you know, I was committed to staying in radio as long as I could. And then the television opportunity came up and quite frankly, the the simple answer to that whole deal, John, is I didn't want to have any regrets when my career was over. I'd never really done it. Um, and it just so happened the people who were talking to me, Rather than offering me a couple of games in the 2013 football and basketball season, they were ready to offer me a package. And believe it or not, I had to convince them that I would take it. They didn't think I would leave Georgia Tech after 18 years. And I told them I'd take it if the business deal was good. And it was good. It was a good business deal. It wasn't a great one. It was a good one. But I really, really wanted to take this dive. And I'm delighted I did. I've been very fortunate and very blessed to work with great people. 
and so excited about the future of it. But at the same time, uh, it's a big team game, and I like being on good teams. And we've been fortunate to have a good team so far in my first five years in television. You ended up being incredibly busy earlier in the year for a myriad of different reasons, work-related, family-related, having to make appearances, having to talk to the media, and also talk as a member of the media. Your father passed away at 76 in March, and that Mm -hmm. same night you end up calling two games of the ACC tournament, including one between North Carolina and Syracuse. (laughs) Right. Of course. I mean, who else would it be on that day? But for someone that has something like that happen and is able to go back to work, and it's interesting you mentioned Adam Amin because he did something similar when his father passed away. That's right. I don't want to say that it's – the best thing that could happen at that time. But did it help being able to go back to work in that sense, to do that in honor of him for just a little while to get back to the norm and, and take some things away while in a way honoring him at the same time, if that makes any oh, sense? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Well, the first of all, the only way to really be comfortable, and my dad knew it, that's why he had told my mom, regardless of what happens, West goes to Brooklyn. Because my dad loved the ACC tournament. I mean, he would tell you he loved the ACC tournament more than he loved the Final Four. Because he had grown up as a kid in North Carolina, and then going to school at Chapel Hill, and then being able to broadcast the event on television before he went to Carolina to start doing the games in 1971. I mean, he adored the ACC tournament. I mean, he loved the event. I mean, especially when Carolina won it, but he loved the event, period. So when he knew I was getting a chance to do the tournament on television, he was thrilled. I mean, two years ago when I got to do it the first time in 2017, he was just overjoyed. And then last year in January when I got the call that I'd be doing the tournament, he was thrilled. And so, you know, that made things a lot easier. Um, if, if things can be easier, um, And then the irony that Carolina had to lose to Duke in the regular season finale, John, or else I don't get Carolina, okay? I mean, I end up with somebody else on my side of the bracket. But, you know, it's almost like, you know, the good Lord was looking out for us a little bit, and he knew my dad was probably, you know, down to his last couple days. And I knew it, too, when I got on the plane Monday morning to fly from Atlanta to LaGuardia that, you know, my dad very well could die in the next couple days. And... You know, it was special. Um, I'm, I'm blessed that I was working with the great people at Raycom, who I've been with now for five years. Um, had a great partner in Dan Bonner. Um, all that stuff just really, really made it feel comfortable. And it was emotional. I mean, it was emotional. Nobody knows what it was like for me to walk from the hotel. It was about a mile walk from the hotel to Barclays Center that morning. Um, and you mentioned Adam. Uh, Adam and I talked the night my dad died because he had just lost his dad and his was much more sudden than mine was. I mean, my dad had had basically the last two years had been a real struggle for him physically and mentally, but Adam had lost his dad suddenly. And so I was just trying to be a good friend and talk to him. And then he and I hung up the phone and literally an hour and a half later, my dad died. So, you know, he and I have been connected not only as friends in this business, but now certainly more significant connection in that we lost our dads within, you know, five or six days of one another. And yeah, we had to go to work and that's what our dads knew we loved to do. And my dad knows that I love this business and he's as responsible for anybody else for me being in it. And so that's been, that was very comforting when, um, you know, when those things happened in New York that I was able to just to, to do the tournament. And my mom was incredibly supportive of it. My brother, my wife, my two kids. I mean, it was, it was, it was a really unique situation. And I was, I was okay talking about it because it's what my dad wanted me to do. And so if he wanted me to do it, I was certainly going to do it. I was not going to step back and say, no, I'll take a pass on this because my dad's passed away. It was, it was an expectation he had of me. And it's certainly something he would have done for sure. Well, we have a, a couple more lighter things on your dad to come. Mm-hmm. I try to close out the interview with a segment called Easy or Pass, which <laughs> okay. are things you can certainly pass on, but hopefully they'll be easy enough as we go on. The first one is, if you go into Durham and people know who you are, 
based mm-hmm. on either your last name or who your father was, are you ever going to have to buy a drink again? <laughs> um, well, first of all, the the city and I are not connected in any way, shape, or form. The city is actually uh, named Durham because of the Duke family and the tobacco industry that they ran. Um, and it's named Durham, and Bull Durham, which was the name of the movie, was actually a line of tobacco that was produced by the Duke family, um, believe it or not. And the Duke family is the reason that Trinity College, which is what Duke University was originally called, is called Duke. Um, you may know or not know that there was a, a run in this country in the late 1800s of wealthy American families who just poured money into education because they thought that was the boon industry, if you will. Uh, so the Dukes and the Vanderbilts and all those people, well, that's why they're the Dukes and the Vanderbilts. They had a lot of money. And um, Carnegie's, you know, those type things, John, all those wealthy people, they may not have had any ties at all. In fact, the Vanderbilt people never saw the institution until long after they'd given the money, if you can believe that. Um, the Duke family was local, so I'm sure they got to see the Trinity College grounds. Um, in in terms of fans, um, I think I've done a pretty good job, knock on wood, of separating myself from my dad's legacy at Carolina. And I think working at Georgia Tech has really helped. And the fact that I go back into the triangle and because I went to high school there and college at Elon and things like that, people know me as West Durham. And so most people are pretty nice. Every once in a while, there'll be a, you know, uh, maybe a, a special a special fan who wants to bring up growing up as a Carolina kid, or he was an NC State fan, or a Duke fan, or whatever the case might be. But ninety nine percent of the fans I interact with are, are really really nice, and it means a lot to be honest with you. So what we're saying is, you'll have to show your license or other form of identification to a younger bartender, like somebody that's doing this work in college who doesn't know any of those incredible historic backstories, then you'll be in. They'll be like, wow, Durham, there must be some connection here. And you'll be Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. No, they'll look and go, oh, and in fact, when, you know, I go to hotels there, I have a bad habit of saying when somebody says, okay, your last name, and I'll say Durham like the city. Well, I'll say it when I'm in Raleigh or Chapel Hill or North Carolina at any point, and they'll look at me and go, well, no kidding. <laughs> and But if I say it in Miami, they look at me like, where is it? Right. You know, so um, it, it goes both ways. <laughs> now, do we have vocal exercises that you do for your different works, or is it just a couple cups of coffee in the morning and we go from there? It's about right. Um, I, I tell folks I'm very blessed genetically to have – uh, pretty much a pretty much a lock stock lock stock voice box knock on wood. I mean, I uh, it, it thins a little bit early in the preseason of the NFL when you get back to work, but uh, but after a while it uh, it catches back up and you can go a long way and it works out pretty good. And I've never you know knock on wood I've never had any major trouble. I used to get annual checkups, things like that. Um, but I've learned some lessons. I quit drinking soda seven years ago. Um, haven't had a soda in seven years. The strongest soda I drink is a ginger ale. Um, and I don't overdo the coffee. I'll do a cup or two in the morning and that's it. I stay pretty much waters and, you know, Powerade, Gatorade type drinks during the day and uh, maybe a little bit of iced tea, but nothing that'll totally dry you out, which sodas will. Sodas will completely dehydrate you if you're not careful and you drink too many of them. Football, basketball, or baseball, which one came the hardest of the three? Baseball. I wasn't a player very long, liked to play, stopped when I was 11 years old. Um, actually played Little League baseball and basketball with Danny Manning when I was a youngster in Greensboro, the basketball coach at Wake Forest. We're the same age. And, um, but baseball is very hard. I did minor league baseball when I was in college. I did home games for a uh, single A team over in Greensboro, uh, summer before my senior year in college. But baseball to me is still difficult because of the pace. Um, you know, football and basketball just move faster. Baseball on television to me, and this is going to sound completely crazy, baseball on television for me is a lot easier than baseball on radio. Um, baseball on radio just becomes a slow rocker on the front porch conversation. And that's a complete gear shift for me based on what I do with football and, and basketball. 
favorite game as a North Carolina fan growing up, and then favorite game you've been able to call just in broadcasting? Ooh. Um, well, the favorite Carolina game I have, believe it or not, is, um, you know, 1974, the, you know, every time Carolina Duke plays, you'll see the eight points in 17 seconds. Walter Davis hits the shot, and more often than not, they play my dad's radio call. That's my favorite Carolina basketball game. I mean, the national championships and all that stuff aside, uh, the eight points in 17 seconds, and I was at the game, um, which is one of those games now where Carmichael Auditorium sat about 8,100 people, John, and you'd swear there were 75,000 that say they were there. So, um, But I was at the eight point and 17 second game in 1974 as an eight-year-old and remember it like it was yesterday in some respects. Um my favorite Carolina football game is actually a game where Kelvin Bryant in the early 1980s set the touchdown record. He scored six touchdowns in the season opener against East Carolina, and they won 56 to nothing. But part of the storyline that day was is that Carolina had had a captain of their 1980 ACC championship team named Steve Streeter. He'd been paralyzed in a car accident, and so he was in a wheelchair sitting in the end zone. And I was in the press box. I was sat in the radio booth with my dad that day. And when Bryant scored the last touchdown to break Don McCauley's school record and the ACC record at the time, Bryant circled across the back line of the end zone and put the ball in the lap of Steve Streeter, who was sitting in the wheelchair. And people were cheering and crying at the same time. I mean, it was just an unbelievable moment. And I I mean, even right now telling you the story, I still kind of get goosebumps and the hair on my arm stands up a little bit because it was such an impactful memory for me um, of, you know, something that was bigger than football. Now, have you told Walter Davis that you were his biggest fan at eight years old? Oh yeah. Yeah. Walter, Walter is well aware. My ex-wife will tell you that the only time she ever really saw me get nervous in 14 years of marriage was when I saw Walter Davis at the Georgia Dome at the <laughs> ACC tournament in 19 and 2001, 2001 ACC tournament. Walter Davis was at the Georgia Dome and she said, it's the first time I've ever seen you get really nervous. I said, it's my childhood idol. I mean, I love Walter Davis. Everything about him, the way he walked, the way he shot it, caught it, um, clothes, all the smooth stuff. I mean, to me, he was going to be a modern day. He was going to be the next Clyde Frazier if he hadn't torn up his knee. So, Aside from doing all that you could in college to prepare yourself for the business, mm-hmm. you had an interesting high school job as a senior <laughs> as a disc jockey but not for the way people might think that would go a disc jockey for a skating rink right and you would play the music for the oh, yeah. couple skate you know, oh, backwards yeah. skate ladies yep. choice do all the lighting yep. and stuff mm-hmm. having to wear a suit and tie while doing so what was that job like for a young awesome. West Durham? loved it loved the job I was a huge music guy. Still am. I mean, you've worked on the show with us in the mornings. I mean, I have, I have an eclectic music taste. My phone and my old iPod look like, I mean, it looks like seven jukeboxes rolled into one. I mean, I just have everything on there. I don't have opera. That's the only thing I don't have. Um, but working at the roller rink was fun and I love music and I was going to, I mean, I'm telling you, if sports didn't work out, I was going to play music at a radio station. I did play music at a radio station the summer after my freshman year from midnight to six in the morning um, and, and still stay connected to music. I'm all over the place listening to it. But, um, you know, it, the roller rink was fun. And as one of my best friends in high school still says to this day, I've, I've never known somebody who worked at a roller rink that came out of there with less phone numbers for girls than you did. And he's right. I mean, I didn't, I didn't meet nearly the, it was not the social benefit that some might think it was for me. And I, to this day, don't know why, I guess I just enjoyed, you know, playing music and I worked Friday and Saturday nights too, John. I mean, I had the big shows as they say, and, uh, it was awesome. I didn't do it very long. I was only there, let's see, January to May before my parents moved to Chapel Hill after my senior year in high school. But man, it was awesome. It was a great time, and uh, it's it's funny to think about that I did it then because um, it was uh, I worked for a guy named Jerry Rose, and he wore the skinny. He looked like Damone from Fast Times at Ridgemont High. 
Um, you thought he'd do everything for broker tickets to cheap trick, just like Mike Damone. But um, it was a fun time. It was I didn't make any money. I mean, I think I made minimum wage. And you had to clean the bathrooms, too. So the guy that did the Friday-Saturday night skating shows then had to go clean the bathrooms after the uh, after the, uh, the the building closed and the program was over for the night. Yeah, well, I don't know if there's any roller rinks in Georgia, but hey, second calling or a third, what are we at now, fourth <laughs> calling if needed. Things go south with the Falcons and everything else. <laughs> yeah. We got something else lined up. That? Perfect. Hey, didn't you do the NFL on radio? Yeah. What do you want to do? I'd like to play records on your Friday and Saturday night show. I don't even know how they – I don't even know what the music looks like. I mean, I don't know if you use an iPod or whatever they use now. Can you imagine they download it off iTunes or Spotify or something like that? That'd be wild, wouldn't it? A couple quick hitters that I learned from your mom, Jean, when she appeared this past week on a podcast done out of Woody Durham's office to speak about yeah. him and some of the things that he did throughout his career. Was he more prepared for the games or better prepared for his outfit to the games? Oh God. Um, I would say he's more prepared for the games. I mean, he had countless Maritais and all these shirts and everything else. And, but, um, yeah, he wanted to, I mean, he, he took the role and he's, you know, that, that part is, is legit with me too. He took the seriousness of being the voice of the Tar Heels. I mean, he, he knew you were representing yourself and representing your brand, but you also represented the entity. And because he'd gone to school there, I mean, he, he never, he had my, my wife, Vicki to this day says, your dad had things Carolina blue. They just don't make, um, and she's right. I mean, he had a lot of different shades of Carolina blue, but and he had a lot of Carolina on when he would go to a game. You you had no doubt who that guy was, and I think that's that's probably pretty important for people to remember these days too. You're representing not only yourself, but you're you're clearly representing that brand when they hire you to do the games. What was the worst punishment he handed down to you growing up? <laughs> um. Oh man. Let's see. I was not a great academician. <laughs> uh, my grades were pretty bad in high school. And um, there was a time my sophomore year that I was really, really fighting it. And they basically said I couldn't go to any basketball games. I went a month without going to basketball games. Jeez. They, I was fortunate they let me still be on the team. But uh, I used to love to go to midweek basketball games. We lived in Cary, and you could go to Chapel Hill and watch a game, and I could go after practice and be at the game and then the whole bit. And pretty soon they just said, well, you know, you need to stay here and work on books. And so I think I stayed at home by myself because my brother was younger and he went with my mom. But, uh, yeah, I'd stay at home and – allegedly study but more or less watch the game but i wasn't going to the game live and i missed a lot of good games that year missed some really good games that year and that was that was the 81 82 season when they won the national championship but i didn't see any i didn't see many home games during the week i went on weekends but i didn't see any home games during the week your mom also mentioned that anyone with tape could send them to him and he would listen and be incredibly precise with his commentary and things that aspiring broadcasters would like to work on did you send him your tapes, or was that something that you no, maybe didn't no, want to he do? No, got him. He, he, he also encouraged me. He would listen to the tape and give me a list of things to work on, and then he'd tell me to send it to other people because he thought that was a way I could connect with, you know, with other people in the business. Um, and believe it or not, that influence, the pay it forward, John, is something that, like, you know, I've got 15 to 20 emails uh, right now on my computer here at home that I listen to clips and I'll jot down on the email. I keep it in the email. I'll play the, whatever it is, a clip on SoundCloud or whatever the case may be. And I'll listen to it. And while I'm listening, I'll keep the email open and I'll just start typing comments in as I listen and send it back. And my dad was, you know, and I'll, I'll meet and have lunch with anybody. I mean, I'll have breakfast or coffee with somebody if they want to be in the business or talk about it. And I think that's what we're kind of supposed to do, believe it or not, in this business. I think this is a shareable industry. I think you're, um, 
I think your legacy is not what you do on the air. It's the kind of person you are. It's the way you treat other people. It's, it's all those type things. And, you know, my dad was incredibly successful. I think he's, I think he's the best college announcer of all time. Um, and I think he, he wanted the industry to thrive. And so in that respect, I think he was, he was going to always be very open about sharing the industry with other people. And I've tried to do the same and, um, you know, whether it's doing something like this or sitting down and talking to people face to face or speaking to groups of people who want to be in the business. I think that's, that's something that those of us who are able to have some success in this industry do because it helps grow the industry for the next generation or the next line of people who want to do games. Mark Packer has shared a story with the ACC This Morning show, and the clip was even found of his father, Billy Packer, doing play-by-play <laughs> for a putt-putt tournament. Yes. Does, does your dad have any similar, wow, he mm. had to broadcast one of those types of moments? Well, my dad actually, in the early years after his uh, after he graduated from college, his first job was in Florence, South Carolina at a television station. And my dad actually did a morning Saturday morning kids show on the local station in Florence. And it was Captain Woody's spaceship. And it didn't last very long, and there are no copies of it because uh, Lord knows we've tried to find them. But he uh, he did Captain Woody's spaceship, and basically he dressed up in a spacesuit and did it as a lead-in to cartoons. And the the hits on camera were like 45 seconds to a minute and a half or something like that. But essentially that's what it was, was just a lead-in. And so he dressed up in this spacesuit, and we actually found an old black and white picture in some of his photos uh, after he passed away. And at Carmichael, the day of his memorial service, they ran all these variety of pictures, and one of the pictures was him wearing the spacesuit. And a longtime friend of my parents came up and said, we saw a picture of Woody in a spacesuit. They said, yep, that's Captain Woody's spaceship. And they had no idea what we were talking about. But, yeah, he the Captain Woody stuff, it, he said no tape existed, so therefore if it did exist, he didn't want us to see it is the bottom line. But I'm beginning to believe no tape ever existed, so... That's probably good because we got that unbelievable picture. So that's all we need. Now, if that's not the name of your fantasy football team, I don't know what <laughs> else to say. No, not this year. No, I've, right. I've changed names. <laughs> uh, I changed names on my college football fantasy team every year. So this year's team is not named Captain Woody's Spaceship, although it should be. To put a bow on that, what is your favorite Hey Woody moment? Oh, God. Um,. Well, the Hey Woody moments developed. Uh, they they first started in the '90s. My brother was traveling a lot with my mom and dad, and he got caught in more Hey Woody moments than anybody else. But um, my favorite Hey Woody moment occurred. Um, my brother actually has the moment. Um, it happened in um, <laughs> it happened in Charlotte at the ACC tournament. My brother was, uh, I think he was in college or in high school at the time, and he was with my mom and dad at the tournament. And this guy yelled over the rail the day of the practices in Charlotte. And he yelled, hey, Woody. And uh, the guy, and my dad looked up and said, hey, how you doing? He said, you remember me? And my dad said, no, I'm sorry, I don't. He says, you mean you really don't remember me? <laughs> and my dad said, no, I'm sorry. And he says, man, I can't believe you don't remember who I am. But he never told my dad who he was. <laughs> <laughs> so my brother said we just stood there and the guy said you really don't remember me and dad said no he said well tell me who you are he said man i can't believe you don't remember me and he turned and walked off and my dad said hell we never knew who he was so the the hey woody moments are just kind of bananas i mean they they come out of nowhere which is funnier than anything else and um you know people have kind of caught on to us using it on social media so it's been kind of cool too so the first of the last two, who knows more about ACC athletics, yourself or Mark Packer? Um, I'll say Pack does because he's older. <laughs> I thought you might go that direction. Yeah, I'll, I'll use, I'll hold his age against him. So yeah, Pack, Pack probably knows more because he, you know, he spent some time out of the footprint like I did, but he spent a lot of time in the footprint. So um, yeah, I'll say Pack does. Although I think that. We could have a pretty good. We could have a pretty good day one day if we went obscure names. We could get some really good obscure basketball and football players, 
and if we got the right people listening, they would they would have a good time. So the Falcons are kicking off their season soon enough. Are we over Super Bowl 51 yet, or what's the story with that? Oh, we're going to be over Super Bowl 51 as Falcons until they go to the next Super Bowl, and then Super Bowl 51 is replayed for them again. You know, I mean, as, as I told people not long after it happened in Houston, you know, this is one of those things that's going to stick around a while now. You, you will eventually shed it when you get to a point that, you know, you win one. And it's the only way they'll rid themselves of it is to win one. And they're talented enough to do it if they stay healthy. And, you know, things happen that need to happen in the NFL. You know, you get a bounce or a break here and there and things like that. I mean, it's a, the, the NFL is a fascinating creature from a, from a sports standpoint because every game is literally determined by five or six snaps seemingly. And the Falcons are, they've got talent on both sides of the ball, but to, you know, 51 will not be forgotten until they win one. And then when they win one, they, you won't have to see the, you won't have to see the Julio Jones catch. And then the three, you know, uh, the sack by Hightower and the fumble and those type things. But it, that won't go away until that, that organization wins one for sure. See that you flip that play by play Atlanta Falcons switch in an instant. You'll be ready to go in a couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, actually preseason's fun to do because, you know, you get to, you know, capture some of the stories of these young guys trying to keep hope alive and play professional football. There's some real fascinating stories, not just in Atlanta, but on all these other teams, too, and they're fun to chronicle. Wes, it's been a pleasure hearing your stories behind the scenes for ACC Radio, ACC This Morning on Channel 371, but more of a pleasure to have you do it on my platform, I guess you could say, and get to have you peel the curtain back of some of the different things you've been able to do to get to where you are today and some of the different experiences you've shared. And hopefully people learned a lot because as usual, when you're telling a story, I end up learning something. So this was (laughs) definitely the case here. And I really appreciate you coming on and look forward to, even though it's early, a couple more shows on ACC as the year goes on as well. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. Appreciate you asking me to join you. Thanks again to Wes for jumping on the show. We'll close out the show with another installment of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Barice. Joe and I have been teammates on the basketball court, sports editors for our college newspaper that is no longer in literal print, and hosts for the prestigious John and Joe Sports Show, which was once found on 99.5 WUSR Scranton and the Royal Television Network. Joe usually sees more movies in a year than the 52 weeks within it to hold the reins here, but don't worry, there aren't any plot spoilers, so you'll still be able to see these films just with a better understanding of what will be in store if you do so, along with Joe's final rating of the film compared to something or someone in the sports world. This week, Joe will break down The Equalizer 2, which Rotten Tomatoes describes... Denzel Washington returns to one of his signature roles in the first sequel of his career... Robert McCall serves an unflinching justice for the exploited and oppressed. But how far will he go when that is someone he loves? You can find Joe on Twitter at Duke Mish. It's D-U-K-E-M-I-C-H. You can also read his movie reviews, previews, and ratings at cupof-joe.com. Again, that's cupof-dash or hyphen or whatever you like to call it, joe.com. Get your popcorn ready. Here's this week's edition of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Barice. What's up, everybody? I'm Joe Burris, and this is 5 Minutes in the Film Room. 2014's The Equalizer is a solid action film carried by the great Denzel Washington and director Antoine Fuqua. When the two team up, the movie is usually a success, dating back to 2001's Training Day, where Denzel won his first Best Actor Oscar. He also won for his supporting role in 1989's Glory. The Magnificent Seven remake is also a pretty good film. What amazed me was that in Denzel's long and illustrious career, he never made a sequel. He never reprised a role. Fuqua hadn't either, until now. The duo decided The Equalizer 2 would be the first, both obviously thinking the character Robert McCall needed revisiting, or maybe they just wanted a little more money. No doubt an odd choice, but here we are. I heard Sony was greenlighting a sequel not too long after the release of the first film. For a while, I didn't think it would be made. The first installment did pretty well at the box office. It made almost $200 million against the $55 million production budget, but that didn't seem like enough to warrant a sequel. Also, The Equalizer is a good movie, but it wasn't a surprise hit. It wasn't this huge critical success. But if Denzel and Fuqua were behind it, I was going to see it. 
Was it worth it? Let's go to the tape. In order to know what the sequel needed to accomplish, you must understand what people liked about the first film and why it is so rewatchable. There's a kind of film that is rarely made these days, or if it is made, it's buried and has limited, if any, success. I'm going to call it the happy genre. These are movies that are made for the sole purpose of making the viewer happy. Now, movies try to strive for more, but there used to be movies where you would know what you were going to see and you were guaranteed to enjoy it because the movie was giving you exactly what you wanted. And don't get me wrong, that's a good thing. Movie makers should strive for more, but that doesn't mean we need to get rid of movies that are like The Equalizer. Let me explain. The Equalizer is a movie about an everyday guy who lost his wife. He's a genuinely nice guy who tries to help people when he can. The rest of the time he lives a lonely life. We came to find out that he is not an everyday guy. That he has a past and he was a weapon for the government for quite some time. He dips back into that life to help people even if that means taking down the Russian mob. Meanwhile, we know he's going to succeed because he's essentially a superhero. He doesn't have powers, but he never makes you believe as though he's going to be stopped. So we as an audience relate to this everyday guy because we imagine he could be us or someone we know. We want these criminals to pay for their crimes because the movie gives us an opportunity to sympathize with the victims. I don't want to overlook Chloe Grace Moretz's performance in the first installment. She is the main victim as the film is about gaining her freedom. We learn about her, we like her, Denzel, a.k.a. Robert McCall, has a friendship with her. Now Denzel is going to avenge her. It's a fun, satisfying movie that is worth multiple viewings. The Equalizer 2 just needed to do something similar. Honestly, the bar was pretty low. The Equalizer 2 meets those requirements. It gives you fun moments, satisfying violence, and a revenge plot. Exactly what we're looking for as an audience. The problem is, it doesn't do much more than that. McCall's friend from the first film, played by Melissa Leo, is murdered in a hotel, and he tasks himself with retaliating. There are also a couple of the subplots, such as the same story from the first film. A young man is an artist, but is forced to be a part of a gang because of money issues. Again, Denzel works to free him. There's another plot with a Holocaust survivor trying to get back a painting that is rightfully his. All these plots push the runtime to two hours when it really only needed to be an hour and a half. The writing isn't great. Melissa Leo, an Academy Award-winning actress, isn't given many good lines. Denzel has a few weird moments, and there's no creativity like the first one had. And it was very easy to figure out who was behind the killing of Leo, and the reasons for doing it have played over and over again in so many movies. Such a tired plot point. The direction is even subpar. Again, the first film had clean, stylistic action. The final scene in this film is shot in a hurricane, which doesn't leave room for style. As I mentioned earlier, a few acting scenes were head-scratchers, where talented actors seemed very pedestrian. Pedro Pascal of Game of Thrones fame and Ashton Sanders of Best Picture winner Moonlight also didn't need to be in the film because they're overqualified for their roles. I wouldn't say this is a bad movie. I would just say it's a step down in every way from its predecessor. Does that make it a bad follow-up film? No. Whatever way they went about making The Equalizer 2, they accomplished what they needed to. People like it. I like it. There's something about the simple pleasure of following a character and an actor that you like and watching him exact justice. As long as that's done right, the rest doesn't matter, at least to the fans of the Equalizer franchise. The bottom line, The Equalizer 2 is lacking in every way where the first film succeeded. Nothing comes close to the Home Alone-style warehouse showdown or Denzel sit-down with the villain during the first movie, but the sequel gets the character right and allows us to cheer for a hero that some of us wish we could be, leaving the audience satisfied. I'll compare The Equalizer 2 to North Carolina State's 1983 National Championship winning dunk. I'm sure we all know how it goes, but the Wolfpack were tied with Houston as time ticked away. North Carolina State had a horrible possession with Thurl Bailey almost throwing the ball away. Derek Wittenberg recovered the errant pass and fired a 30-footer, which was destined to be an air ball. But Lorenzo Charles essentially turned it into an alley-oop and slammed it home at the buzzer for the national title. Now, the impact of that play isn't comparable to the Equalizer 2, but the haphazard way they both got to their destination is one of the same. Sexy. Check! Uh, check, please.
That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this show and all previous shows over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. You can find The Bridge on iTunes by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast. There you'll find the newest episodes of The Bridge every Wednesday night. And also, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. You can also find The Bridge on Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn. And can listen to a brand new show on Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time by searching for Sports Radio America on TuneIn. In the next installment of The Bridge, we'll dive into Major League Baseball, dabble in the NBA, circle the wagons of the National Football League, and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports.